Tonight's readings from 1 Corinthians, uh, chapter 6, page 1147. It's page 1147, 1 Corinthians, chapter 6. Starting at verse 1 through to verse 11. Page 1147. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those who, whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there's nobody amongst you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Well, don't you know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor, nor adulterers, nor, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is God's word. Good evening. Andy, thank you so much for reading our passage. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We pray that you would help us now. Help me. We pray that your spirit would be at work as I speak. Speak through me by your spirit, we pray. Unless your spirit works through me, I might as well go home now. And so we ask for your help. And we pray that you would help us as we listen. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When I was at uni, uh, just before starting my final year, I and five other Christian students uh, moved into a house share. And a couple of weeks after moving in, uh, the lead tenant asked me if if me and another tenant um, wanted to move out. And he asked us to move out because he said, look, the um, landlord has said he only wants a house to have four tenants and not six. And I thought, okay, maybe you could have clarified that a bit earlier. Um, but okay, I, I was one of the final year students, and so I knew I could get accommodation on campus. So I thought I'd move there. And the clouds seemed to be gathering around that house anyway. And I thought, look, if I move on campus, I can have a line before lectures 
That's a win. But when I moved out, I, I assumed that I would get my deposit back. And so the lieutenant said, yeah, look, sorry, the, the money's now locked away. Can't give it back to you now. Um, we can only give it back to you at the end of the tenancy. And again, I was a bit miffed by that, but I thought, okay, um, I'll wait until the end of the tenancy then. And you can kind of, you can, I think you can see where this is going. Come the end of the tenancy, did I, did I see my money? No, I didn't get my money back. And so at the time, I lost about 400 quid, which as a student is a lot of money. Do you know what most annoyed me about it all? The thing that most annoyed me was the fact that he was a Christian. I found that when I'm mistreated by another Christian, it hurts so much more than when it's by a Christian. When I'm I'm mistreated by a non-Christian, I think, they don't know better. They don't know Jesus. They're not trying to live for him. But when I'm mistreated by a Christian, I think, how can they claim to be a follower of Jesus and still treat another person, especially a brother or sister, this way? I mean, we were saying that confession earlier, and towards the end it said, we were saying, um, help me to please, I want to please you, Jesus. As Christians, that's what we want to do, Right? And so I find it really hard. And I don't know if, if you can relate. Maybe you've also been let down by other Christians in the past. If you haven't, although I hate to say this, there's a high chance that you will be in the future. I really wish I could say I was the last Christian to have been wronged by another. But of course, that's, that's not the case. I'm not the last. And I also know from today's passage that I wasn't the first. Christians mistreating, uh, mistreating one another was a real issue in the Corinthian church. So in verse 8, Paul says, you cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. In this series in 1 Corinthians so far, we've seen that there are many issues plaguing the Corinthian church. We've seen that they're puffed up, for example. And last week, we learned that there's a serious case of sexual immorality in the church. And the people couldn't care less about it. And this week, we learned that there's swindling going on in the church. And today's passage, and what we'll learn from today's passage, is how Christians are to react when they've been wronged or mistreated by others in the church. Our question this evening is this, how should we respond when we've been wronged by other Christians? How should we respond when we've been wronged by other Christians? And Paul's answer is this, deal with it in the church, not the courtroom. Deal with it in the church, not the courtroom. Let's read from from verse 1. If any of you has a dispute with another Do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things 
of this life. I want to add a brief caveat uh, before I explain these verses. When I say that uh, we should deal with Christians who have wronged us in the church rather than in the courtroom, I don't mean that we should never want uh, a Christian to be tried in court or that we should never go to the police. I mean that we should deal with issues in-house when they are disputes, as it says there in verse 1, or when they're trivial cases, as it says in verse 2. In other words, wrongdoing should be dealt with in the church, not the courtroom, when it's a civil case, not when it's a criminal case. If a crime has been committed, obviously you must report it to the police. For example, if there's been any form of abuse, then you need to tell the police. So we can't take what Paul's teaching here to include criminal offenses. I just want to make that really clear. Our passage concerns litigation, not crime. So elsewhere, for example, in Romans 13, Paul says, The one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities. Is Paul against the, the CPS or the criminal justice system? Of course he's not. So please do not go away um, tonight thinking that we shouldn't report to the police a Christian who's committed a crime. Of course we must. just wanted to clarify that before, before we continue. Now, what reasons does Paul give for dealing with wrongdoing in the church rather than in the courtroom? He gives us three reasons. The first is this. Christians will judge the world and angels. So he says in verse 2, do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And you have to, if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? And then do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Now, how should knowing that we will one day judge the world and angels stop us from taking people to civil court? What's the link? Compare the scope and the stakes of the civil court of those with, let's call it, the heavenly court. The civil court might deal with a dispute between two individuals concerning things that are perishing. Things like money or property. Things that you will lose after you die. But the heavenly court, well, that, that deals with things that are eternal including the judgment of evil that has, that has occurred across the globe and across the spiritual realm and from the beginning of time right until the end. Which court do you think is more significant? The civil one or the heavenly one? Christians will participate with Christ in judging the world and angels about things that matter eternally. I find that mind-blowing. So why go to the world for judgment 
when you will one day judge the world? Why go to a judge who wears a fake wig in a civil court for arbitration? Rather, we we should go to the church to deal with a dispute because it is the church who will one day judge the world. Since the church will be qualified to judge the whole world, Paul says it should therefore also be qualified to arbitrate between two Christians. Arbitrating the latter is child's play compared to the cosmic judgment we will all one, one day undertake with Jesus. So that's Paul's first reason that wrongdoing should be dealt with in the church rather than in the courtroom. The second reason is this. Christians are family members. Look at verse 6. But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The second reason Paul says that we shouldn't take a Christian to court is because we're family. Sadly, there are a lot of broken families in our world, and brothers don't always get along. But that's not the ideal, is it? It's possible for enmity to exist between brothers only because we live in a fallen, broken world. But in God's kingdom, there should be no enmity between siblings. God's people who are brothers and sisters in Christ should be marked by love for one another. Jesus says, by this, so he says this in John 13, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So that's Paul's second reason for dealing with disputes in the church rather than in the courtroom. Christians are family members and should seek to resolve disputes amicably with the goal of being reconciled to one another. That's not the, that's not the civil court's aim, is it? Only the church wants to see restored relationships between spiritual siblings. Here's a third and final reason for not dealing with disputes in the courtroom. It's a bad witness. In verse 6, we can see that Paul is mortified that Christians are hanging their dirty laundry in public. He says, and this in front of unbelievers. Dealing with disputes in the courtroom will not make the church an attractive community to the onlooking non-Christians, will it? Although courtrooms today are, are indoors and not necessarily well attended, that was not the case in Corinth. In Corinth, the court was outdoors in, in, the, in the agora, in the public square. So anyone could see what was happening in the court room. No wonder Paul is shocked. The Christians don't care how their disputes might be perceived by the world. They just care about winning their own court cases. Can you see their attitude? Oh, who cares what the non-Christians think? I just want want my money back. 
I want my 400 quid back. That's the attitude. See what Paul's teaching us here? He's teaching us that as Christians, we shouldn't be primarily concerned about what we can gain individually. We should be concerned about making the gospel attractive to outsiders and and preventing it from, from looking unattractive to outsiders. And the way we, we relate to one another plays a massive part in that, doesn't it? So are we careful not to put people off the gospel by how we treat one another? It's so much more important that people join the church and be saved than that we win a lawsuit, no matter how much money we stand to win or lose. Taking fellow Christians to court is not going to make any potential seekers want to join our community, is it? They will not see the church as a loving place. And that is what Jesus says we should be. We should be a loving place. So those are the reasons Paul gives for seeking to deal with those who've, who've wronged us in the church. Deal with it in the church rather than in the courtroom. But so far, Paul's covered this issue rather generally. In verses 7 to 11, he, he turns to the plaintiffs and to the defendants, addressing each in turn. And he starts with the plaintiffs. Our next point is this, a challenge to the plaintiff. Have a look at me at verse 7. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Paul has some nerve, doesn't he? Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Because it's unfair, Paul. That's why. That's not a hard question to answer. I want the person who's wronged me to pay for what they did. I want my 400 quid back. Do you expect me to just let them get away with it? That's how we're tempted to, to reply to Paul, isn't it? How on earth can Paul expect a Christian who's been wronged by another to just take it on the chin? There are two reasons. And the first is this. When you take another Christian to court, you've already lost, as it says in verse 7. Even if you win the lawsuit, you've actually experienced defeat. Why? Because the relationship between you and that other Christian is broken. Even if the, court, the court's ruling enables you to get your money back, you most definitely have not won your brother or sister back. There's still going to be animosity between the two of you. And how is that going to help the church be united? Remember, that's what we've been learning in 1 Corinthians, right? There's this real issue that the church, they're divided. Filing lawsuits against one another is not going to help their cause. 
Imagine seeing the brother or sister in, in church, the brother or sister in church with whom you've been in court. It's going to be extremely awkward being around them, isn't it? You're probably going to try to avoid sitting near them during a church service. And when you do, and what you and what do you do when, when you approach a group to chat after the service, but then notice that, that that person is in the group? And what do you do when you're invited to someone's house for dinner, but discover that that person is also going to be there? It just makes church so stressful and unpleasant, doesn't it? Rather than enjoying being around our brothers and sisters, we become preoccupied with avoiding our nemesis. For a Christian, even winning a court case is a defeat. It's always a defeat. It doesn't help our church unity. The second reason Paul can ask, why not rather be wronged or cheated, I think is this. Jesus himself was wronged and cheated. In 1 Corinthians, Paul has been telling Christians to live cross-shaped lives, which, as we know, seems so foolish to the world, but which is God's wise way of life for believers. Jesus allowed himself to be wronged and cheated. He was betrayed by one of his closest friends. And he was given the death sentence, even though the governor Pilate said, I find no basis for a charge against him. Jesus was wronged and betrayed. Folks, when... When we allow ourselves to be, to be wronged and cheated, which I know we hate doing, we do not want to do, when we allow ourselves to do that, we are being like Jesus. We are living cross-shaped lives. And that's what winning in the kingdom of God looks like. In the kingdom of God, winning isn't the court case going your way. It's living a cross-shaped life like Jesus did. So that's Paul's challenge to the plaintiffs. Be more like Jesus. Be more like Jesus. In verses 8 to 11, he, he turns to the supposed defendants to give them a warning. Our next point is a warning to the defendant. Let's have a look at verse 8. Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong. And you do this to your brothers and sisters. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. What message does Paul have for the person in church who's swindling others because of greed? It says, watch out. 
People who live that way will not inherit God's kingdom. They will not be saved. Paul doesn't let the the person who's sinning against their brother or sister off the hook, does he? He says, look, keep up this way of life and you will lose everything. Not only will you lose the money that you've wrongfully taken from another Christian, you will miss out on salvation. Folks, are we living as double agents? Do we claim to be Christians but then live like the world? Are we living in unrepentant sin? If we are, then let's heed Paul's warning. This is a very serious warning he's making. If we think that because we are saved by grace that we can therefore just go on sinning without repenting, we are in for a massive shock. Now, hear me out. I'm not saying that as Christians that we need to live perfect lives. But we are expected to live new lives. Look at verse 11. And that is what some of you were. You were sexually immoral. You were idolaters. You were adulterers. You were men who had sex with men. You were thieves. You were greedy. You were drunkards. You were slanderers. You were swindlers. That is what you were. But that is not what you are. Why not? Paul says, But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul doesn't end on a note of judgment, does he? He reminds us what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who by God's Spirit is a new creation, So we should live as though that were the case. Brothers and sisters, what is your identity as a Christian? You are holy. God has made you holy. That's how he sees you. You can come into his presence. When it says that we are sanctified, it simply means that we are holy. And that is why we can be called saints. Every Christian is a saint. A saint isn't some super-duper Christian who's really special. Every Christian is a saint because every Christian has been made holy by God. Not only are you holy, you're also righteous in God's sight. No matter what sins you've committed in the past, God sees you as righteous. You've been justified So your past sin is no longer what defines you. Yes, you were sexually immoral. Yes, you were swindlers. But that's no longer how God sees you. He says you're righteous. Friends, we are 
righteous and sanctified because God has washed all our sins away. So you don't need to be ashamed of who you were. Rejoice because of who you are. If you're here this evening and uh, you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, here's the identity that is available to you if you will trust and follow Jesus. It doesn't matter what you have done in your past. It doesn't matter how bad you think you are. If you'll come to Jesus, he will say, don't worry. That is, that is who you were. Let me show you. Let me show you who you now I hope you'll consider putting your trust in him if you've never done that before so that you might receive this new identity that is available to you. Let's pray.